Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? The Golden Bough by David H. Keller. Last night, she said, I had a dream. In that dream, I saw a house in a dark forest. Now that we're married, let us travel till we find that house, for it is there that I want to live. Paul Gallion smiled as he looked at his bride of a few hours. This was her first request, and long ago he had promised her that her first request after their marriage should be granted, no matter what it was. This idea of hunting a dream house seemed a peculiar one, but he decided it would be fun, and besides, he had promised. Gallion was of royal blood, but it was in an age when royalty was no longer fashionable, so he contented himself with the other things he had inherited and forgot about the title. He had been bequeathed money, pride which held his head high, courage and a kindly manner. He had married Constance Martin, knowing little and caring less about her ancestry. All that concerned him was the plain fact that they were in love. So Gallion and his bride started eastward through Europe with no definite destination, simply sliding over the hills and down through the valleys in search of their dream house, for Constance often said to her husband, I shall not have any trouble in knowing the house when I see it. When we find it, we shall rest there a long time till the remainder of my dream comes true. It is a house in a dark forest, and it is as real as the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I know you're laughing at me, but it is not a wild goose chase. We are seeking an actuality. As they slowly drove through the country or sat over their meals at little taverns or enjoyed the sunsets at the close of day, they talked of the dream house, and Gallion asked a thousand questions. Was it a house or a castle? How large was it? Was it habitable or just a mass of ruins? Were they really to live there? Was there a library? Fireplaces? Thus, through long conversations, they discussed the most important details of their search. Gallion did not care, so long as he could spend twenty-four joyous hours with Constance. He did not care if the journey never ended, if only she remained contented and happy. On and on, day after day, they went and finally came to a dark forest. There the giant pines rose a hundred feet upward before branching. There was a hush in the air and a peculiar absence of little living things which made all still and unusually quiet. The ground was covered with a heavy matting of pine needles. In some of the little open spaces, thick moss shone softly green against the copper background of the dry spills. Circles of moist ground were ringed round about by toadstools, which glowed waxy white in the dim, uncertain light. On high, bare rock shelves, fool's gold glittered in the occasional sunbeams. From the lofty branches of the pines, cones had fallen on the road. These crackled loudly under the tyres, but this and the throb of the engine were the only sounds that broke the eerie stillness. 
The road crossed over other roads, yet here and there bunches of wild grass grew in the wagon ruts, showing how old the road was and how seldom used. Galleon throttled the engine down till the car made only a few miles an hour. They drifted rather than rolled, seeming to sail into a dreamland of ethereal beauty. At times, an unexpected ray of sunshine illuminated a part of the forest like light breaking through the multi-tinted windows of a Gothic cathedral. And for a moment, the heart paused in its beating with the beauty of it all. They came at last to a fork in the road. The main road went on down into the valley. The other climbed in tortuous curves up the mountain. When the woman saw that upwinding road merging into the pines, she whispered, as though anxious that no one save her husband should hear, Let us go that way. What a beautiful road. Where will it take us? What shall we find at its end? I know, replied her husband, as he turned off the main road. We shall go on and up and on and up, and at the end... We shall come to the home of a woodcutter or a charcoal burner, and after much trouble we will turn around and come down again. Let's do that, she urged enthusiastically. Galleon was not correct, however, in his prophecy, for at the end of the road was neither hut nor peasant burning charcoal. Rather, there was a house in the woods. Constance Martin Galleon looked at it once and looked at it twice, then covering her face with her hands, started to cry. Her husband, who was now accustomed to her moods, gently drew her to him, saying nothing until her sobbing ceased. At last she lifted her head from his shoulder and turned a smiling face to him, saying, How stupid! But it was joy, Paul, that made me cry, and nothing else. Now we have come to the end of our search, for this is the house of my dreams and in it I want to live a long time, till I know what life is and the real definition of love. Galleon looked at her, surprised and slightly disappointed. I didn't know your plan included really living here. I'm sure it would be a splendid place to stay for a little while if we had servants and could entertain and had all the little accessories to make life comfortable and pleasant, but none of these things can be had here. Still, if you want to, we will stay here, if possible, for a few days. Perhaps after a night and day of it, you will be glad to go on with me to some city where there is light and laughter, music and dancing. Constance jumped out of the car. At least we can see what it's like. I called it a house, but it's, it's really an old castle. I'm sure it must be very old. Do you remember anything about castles, Paul? Could you tell how old this place is just by looking at it? He looked at the rough stone-walled building, the weathered parapets, then shook his head. How can I tell? But there is a part of your answer. See that tree, the one growing near the wall? That was not there when the castle was built. It would have afforded too easy an access to the windows. No doubt, when the place was built, all the trees within a hundred yards were cut down, so if an enemy attacked the castle, they would have no shelter. This one tree surely, and perhaps all the others, must have grown since that time. Some of them are five feet in diameter. This road must have been built by the Romans. Maybe part of this castle was built by them. Shall we go inside? 
No one lives here save bats and toads. However, we can look around and go on until we reach a town. But again he was in error. Circling the wall, they came to an old woman, seated on a three-legged stool, herding a few goats and geese. Gallian spoke to her first in French and then in German, but she only smiled at him toothlessly. Constance tried Italian, and at once there followed a conversation that glittered in explicatives as a summer storm is forked with lightning. At the end of ten minutes, the bride turned to her puzzled husband. You didn't know I could do that, she asked. I was raised in a convent in Rome. This old dame says she's a caretaker of the castle. Years ago, the owner went to war and simply told her to look after the place, that if anyone came who wanted to live here, to rent it for a certain sum in gold. She says there is everything in the place for comfort and she will serve us. Her people live in the valley and will bring us food. She prefers to live here with her pets. The aged woman took the bride's hand and whispered. Tears brimmed Constance's eyes as she translated. She says the man who went to war years ago was her lover. They were happy here for a month and a day. Since he has gone, she just stayed here with her memories for companions. The dame showed them through the castle. They were surprised to find it so comfortable in its homely simplicity. Throughout there were signs of great age, but all had been well and lovingly cared for. A slight chill was over all, but it was not dampness, the walls were dry. The woman asked if they wished her to build fires. Constance looked pleadingly at Paul. Half-reluctantly he handed the woman five pieces of gold, the price of a month's service. Thus it was that they came to live in the dream house, now materialised as a castle in the dark forest. Many were the rooms in the castle which the lovers thrilled over but two delighted them especially, each in a different way. One was a library with solid walls and a long horizontal slit of a window through which the sun came from morning to night, and time could be told by the position of the beam of light. The first streaming light of morning fell on Eve, graven in pink marble, conscious of the knowledge gained by the fall in the garden. Just before night came the last light which fell on a bronze man, tortured by the surety that he must die before he achieved to the wisdom greater age might have taught him. Between the marble eve and the bronze man were books of every size, cover and age. Paul Gallion knew that he would be very happy in this room. The other room was a bedroom. The floor was of wide oaken boards covered here and there with bearskins. A bridal chest was the only furniture, save a large four-poster bed standing central in the room, and was, according to the ancient guide, the best bed in the castle. Her eyes glistened as she looked at it, glistened through tears. Many narrow windows completed one side of the room, casement windows which could be opened, giving the night full freedom to enter. Decorations there were none, no pictures nor draperies, simply the chest and the bed. Constance, beholding the bedroom, quivered with delight. This will be our room, she said, and requested that the bed be aired forthwith and made with fresh clean sheetings. Thus one was happy because of the library and the other because of the bedroom and each pleasured in the joy of the other. 
For a week they did nothing but explore the castle and the dark woods surrounding it. During that week the automobile stood where they had left it. The road ran past the castle and on through the woods to a sudden ending at a sharp precipice, making an edge to the mountain. A mile below they could see a little mountain stream decorating the mottled green of the valley like a silver ribbon, lying haphazard. Standing on the very rim of the world one day, the lovers felt that here was truly the end of a long trail. Constance turned to her husband, saying, Will you do one more favour for me? If it will make you happy, he replied with a kiss. She looked at him anxiously, twisting in her indecision. All my life, dear, I have wanted to be happy in just this way. I do not understand my emotions, but I do know that I am happy and that I am fearful lest something spoil it. I want to stay here. At night I wake up crying, and I know the tears come because I cannot bear to think of leaving. Ever since I dreamed of this place, I have wanted it, and in it I have found not quiet peace, but a tumultuous rapture, expectation of what I know not, nor why. This I do know, that if I have to leave here, I shall die with longing to return. I can't bear to look at the car. It's a symbol of roving. It means that some day you will ask me to sit on the seat beside you and ride to the cities you delight in. When I see it standing there, a dark despair fills my heart. Suppose I take it down to the village and store it. No, because then you can claim it again. I want... Oh, I know it's silly, but I want... I must have you do it. Start it and let it go down over the side here. When I know that it is down there, crushed and broken, a mile below me, I shall sleep in peace. The fears of the great cities will no longer torture me with the menace of their nearness. Galien drew a deep breath. "'Tis a good car,' he said simply. For answer she clung to him, trembling in the fierceness of her desire— and because he loved her, he asked her to wait for him. Without looking at her again, he went and drove the car within ten feet of the lip of the ledge. Stepping out, he threw on the gas and let it go free. Up it plunged into the air, and down it fell like a fallen star, striking so far below that no noise came to tell them of its destruction. The man looked at the woman, and on his face was a twisted, bitter smile. But the woman, with eyes shut, breathed deeply, peacefully. Nor did she rouse from her seeming sleep for a long time, and then only to kiss him passionately, lapsing again into her dreams. Thus it was dark before they returned to the castle. The old woman was anxious about them, for seeing the car gone when she returned from her herding, she thought that they had left for further adventuring, a new life perhaps in the great, to her, unknown cities, where her lover had gone whistling in the days before the war. Thus the springtime came and went, and summer brooded warmly over the dark forest in all its sweet majestic beauty. Time passed happily, though slowly, through long months. More and more time Galleon spent in the library, while Constance, in a long happy days, spent hours on the bed dreaming of the future and of dreams already come true. 
The dame had shown her dresses of ladies long dead, and more and more frequently the bride wore these gay things of past ages, and more and more she wore her hair braided down her back in two long ropes falling below her knees, and more and more she passed the minutes looking through the windows into the dark forest. One day she noticed that the room was but twenty feet from the ground, and that the ivy covering the wall formed a perfect ladder for adventurous feet. That night she could not sleep. The old woman in her walled-off bedroom slept, dreaming of her long-dead lover and the beautiful wild thing in the forest that had come to her through him. Galleon, tired from a day of study, slept dreamlessly. Under the flagstones in the kitchen the cricket slept, but Constance Martin Galleon, wide-eyed and pulsing-hearted, lay with her face in the moonbeams. Sleep! She could not. In the dark forest there was neither song of bird, hoot of moon-owl, nor howl of faraway wolf. There all slept. Then came the near music of a pipe, the thin, trilling, few-noted music of a pipe. And Constance, without knowing that she knew it, realised that the tune was the oldest in the world contained in one octave, but encompassing every dread and exultation known to mankind throughout the ages. Even in bed her fair body wove from side to side as she lay listening to the music of the pipe. Not being able to bide longer, she ran to the casement where she saw a man making the music, and around him in silent circles were geese and goats. The man sat on a rock and made mad music in the moonlight. The woman put on a pair of slippers, crept into a black silken robe, and inching to the window, climbed down the ivy. Her feet hardly touched the ground as she sped to the rock broke through the circle of goats and geese and came near to the man who was making the olden music. As he came to the end of his song, and the music died in the murmuring notes mixed with the mellow moonbeams, he looked at her with a glad smile. You like my music? It's wonderful. Who are you, and where did you learn to play? I have always lived around here. This is my home. I never learned to play. I always knew how. Only one piece, but it can be played in an infinity of ways. Would you like to hear more? Come here beside me while I pipe for you. Then he played in a livelier manner, and the goats and the geese stepped a gay measure to the music. Round and round the rock they went until at last Constance joined them. Between a goat and a goose she danced till there was an ending to the music. She rejoined the man on the rock, flushed and breathless, happier than she had been in all her life. Oh, I'm so happy, she whispered, entranced. Throwing back his head, he laughed, revealing glistening white teeth in the moonlight. He tossed his arms upward. In one hand was the pipe, in the other there was nothing and with that hand he clutched at moonbeams, and he laughed gaily. It is wonderful to be happy. Men and women used to be happy, 
I seem to remember this place being filled of a night with bravely dressed men and dainty women in love, and sometimes the men piped for the ladies to dance, sometimes the men loved for the entrancing of their women, and which pleased the women the more, the music or the loving. How can I, being a man, tell? Those days are gone save in my memory and I am not sure even that serves me honestly. At least I now have no audience save such as you see. Suddenly she turned to him and asked, Who are you? What does that matter, as long as my music thrills you? It, it does make me glad. Weeks ago I dreamed of this place and asked my husband to find it with me. He did. I asked him to destroy the car so we would not be able to leave. He did. I want a son, a gay, gladsome son, who will be able to catch the moonbeams and play the pipes. Can he give me that son? Perhaps, but what odds? If you want a son, I will tell you how. Have you seen the pool of dark water over the hill on the other side of the castle? No doubt the old lady told you not to drink there, that it was poison. Near the water is a giant oak. Now you must do thus and so. Slowly, for an hour, he held her hand, telling her just how she should do and why, and if she did this and the other as he directed, the desire of her heart would be granted. He promised that on every moonlit night he would sit on the rock, playing the pipe for her pleasurance, and thus, when her child was born, it would be a child of great joy and wondrous beauty, a player of ancient tunes upon the pipes, a gatherer of moonbeams and stardust. She walked slowly back to the castle, climbed the ivy, put off her shoes and her black silken robes. She stole again to her husband's side, while he, never having wakened, snored peacefully, for that he had never knowingly wronged anyone. Constance, awake beside him, heard him snore, and still in her soul rang the unearthly sweet music of the stranger's pipe. She could not help contrasting the two. Placing one ear against the pillow, she covered the other with a mass of hair and a pink palm. Thus she slept lulled to calm by the memory of that soul-engulfing liquid music of the moonlight. The next morning she woke and could not tell whether it had been a dream or reality. Her husband was still asleep, but she woke him with a torrent of kisses and then was unable to tell him of the night or her desires. The same day the old woman left the castle and wandered through the dark forest till she met the man who had played the pipes. She kissed him tenderly and ran her fingers through his tight curled hair and over his pointed ears. At last she took courage and asked him to play no more at the castle till the woman and the man departed. But you were asleep last night, he answered her. Yes, but I saw the tracks around the rock and the woman's footprints mingled with those of the animals and the birds, so leave her alone for the sake of your mother. For reply, he only laughed and ran away in big skipping leaps. The mother was worried 
she had never been able to tell whether she had created a simpleton or a god. Constance began to prepare according to directions of the man who piped in the moonlight. There had to be a ladder, a sickle, and a white sheet. Some of these things could only be got by the wiles of a cunning woman. Finally, all was ready. With burning heart, she undressed and pretended to sleep on her pillow, but while sleep came swiftly to her husband, she remained wide-eyed and anxious till she was sure of his slumber. She donned her robe and slippers. Tying the sickle in the sheet and the bundle to her back, she went out the window to the ivy and down to where the ladder rested against the wall. Lifting the ladder to her shoulder, she tiptoed westward from the castle to the place of the pool of dark water. It was moonlight, and the shadows and the moonbeams made curious fairyland of the dark forest. Though her heart was beating fast, fast, there was a song on her lips, a very old song, such as could have been sung within one octave or upon a very simple pipe. She came at last to the old oak tree which grew by the dark pool and drank of its water. Placing the ladder against the scabby bowl, she looked upward. On the first branch, just a little above the ladder, grew a spray of mistletoe, its green leaves, white berries and grey stems all shimmering in the eerie moonlight. Taking the sheet, she spread it evenly over the ground under the parasite plant. On the sheet she placed the sickle. Now she loosened the two long braids and let those dark, wondrous tresses come in freedom, one in front and one behind her body, which she freed from her silken robe and white gown. Taking the sickle in hand, she, trembling, started up the ladder. Near the top she paused. The mistletoe was within her reach. She still hesitated, and while she did so, was it the wind? A long strand of hair reached over and entwined around the grey-branched parasite. The woman looked at the union of plant and hair, then slowly reached and freed herself. With the curved knife she began cutting the plant from the oak, being careful to take a large piece of the bark with the roots of the plant in it. With the last slash the mistletoe fell earthward, but on the shadowed sheet, which was as it should be, for all in vain had it touched the heart. Then this last of the druid worshippers descended the ladder carefully and placed wet moss over the cut bark, tying it tenderly in the white linen sheet. The ladder she slid into the dark pool and did up her hair and put on her clothes. With ineffable joy in her heart, she tripped back to the castle, somewhere in the dark, moon-spangled forest. A laughing man piped a very old tune, and she, hearing him, sang the song to his music. Back in the bedroom she found it still light from the moon. On the headpost of the bed, on the side on which she slept, she fastened the freshly cut bark, placing the wet moss over and around it, and wrapped it all with the white sheet which she tied in hard knots. Thus was the mistletoe grafted onto the oaken bed just a foot above her pillow. She kissed the white fruit and, loosening her hair, fell asleep. Thus Paul Galleon first beheld her in the morning, 
On her face the smile of infinite peace. Her slippers kicked wantonly from her feet, he found were wet, and her silken robe stained with dew. She is a queer little wild thing, and so far I cannot tell what she's doing. Perhaps the old woman can help me. He spoke to himself as a feeling of frustration and futility settled over him, as a rain cloud envelops a mountain peak. The next time one of the girls came up from the village with fruit, Gallion took her and the old woman into the kitchen, whereby the girl's little knowledge of French made the woman understand what he needed to know. Sighing, she bade the girl leave them. She then led Gallion to the library, where she found him a very old book with pictures in it, and crossing herself, left him. Gallion began the study of that book, even as young men have studied it in all centuries past. The young bride woke, saw the mistletoe, smiled, and went to sleep again. When next she woke, she dressed. After dinner she took the silver pitcher, and in it carried water from the dark pool, as was her wont each day, for the moss must be moist for the grafted parasite to grow. And it grew. Finally it spread all over the head of the bed, fastening here and there to the ancient oak, and seeming to sap the life from it. At last Paul Gallion solved the secret of the book and understood the conduct of his wife. Now, while in the library he slept, so when night came he was able to stay awake. The full moon passed. The dark of the moon had come and gone. Now the crescent moon was growing larger, thriving on her diet of stars. The first night of the watch Constance slept as though drugged. So satisfied was her husband with her sound sleep that he arose, lit a candle, and sat on the bridal chest watching her. It was dark in the room, and he decided that when she stirred he would blow out the candle, even though by so doing he would be alone with the shadowless things. Her girlhood beauty was now ripening into the full bloom of womanhood, her white face shone like a pearl amid the blackness of her loosened hair, which covered the pillow. Above her shadowed masses of the grey mistletoe, green leaves and white berries. Even as he looked, a branch drooped slowly until it rested on her breast. The ringlets of her hair seemed to curl upward from the pillow to interlace, caressingly with the green leaves. All her fair body was at last covered with black hair and green plant. She smiled as though her dream were giving her great joy. Now and then her lips moved, as if caressing a lover. The next nights were the same. Then came a fuller moonlight, and the woman was restless. She tossed by her husband with little murmuring cries. I cannot sleep, she sobbed. Life is too full. There is so much love and happiness in the world. Why should a woman spend her life sleeping? She flung herself passionately into her husband's arms, smothering him with kisses, wrapping her hair all about him. Life is too short, she cried again and again. He tried to satisfy her and calm her, but at last pretended to sleep. She lay quietly by him, but he knew by her short, sharp breathing that she was wide awake and restless. Then, through the sweet, resinous air of the moonlit forest, came the sound of music. Constance sat upright. She listened to her husband, then, satisfied that he was asleep, she ran to the window. 
There on the rock sat the laughing man, surrounded by the goats and the geese, and the tune he played was a very old one, all within one octave. Drawing on her leather slippers, she climbed down the ivy, hurrying on eager feet to join the dance. Paul Galleon stood in the shadow and watched her dance, all lovely and exotic in the moonlight with the goats and the geese who paced sedately with her. After the dance, she sat on the rock with the man who clutched moonbeams. Is all well with you? he asked. All is well. The plant is growing on the oak bed. Every night the spirit enters my body. I never knew how exquisite real happiness could be. The thought of your love and your music fills my every thought. Life is naught without love, replied the man, laughing as he reached into the air for the moonbeams. Keep the plant well watered, my dear. Whenever you are not sure of yourself, follow me. As Galleon watched from his window, he thought of the old book with its pictures and knew that he had but little time to spare. Below, in the little room next to the kitchen, the old dame heard the music, crossed herself, kissed the silver cross which hung from her neck, prayed and remembered other such nights, long years gone by. She determined to ask the strangers to leave before it was too late. The next day, the young woman made her usual visit to the dark pool, carrying her little silver pitcher, while her husband went to the little village at the bottom of the valley for letters and food. There he talked with some of the young men, and they went far away with a mule team, and in a week came back with a number of long iron pieces of pipe. Came a day when Constance went to the dark pool, carrying her little silver pitcher, and instead of the dark pool of water, there was but a mud spot, nothing save the slime of the ages, and on the slime rested the ladder. Angry she walked around the edge of the muddy hole, and at last found where the water had all drained through long iron pipes. She looked at the giant oak, and saw all the mistletoe on it was turning golden, a sign of dryness, death, decay. Crying, she ran back to the castle with her empty pitcher, up to her bedroom. Her husband was there arranging some of his ties. She ignored him as she ran to her side of the bed. There was no mistake. The love plant was indeed golden, on the bed as on the tree. It must have water every day from the dark pool, and now it was dead from the lack of it. She touched it pityingly, and the leaves dropped off. All the dried berries rolled in a pitter pattering across the floor. All the dark green had turned to golden brown. She faced her husband. Why did you do it? Do what? Drain my pond. I was afraid of malaria. It was the only place like it on the mountain, and I didn't want you to be sick. Fool, 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 she shrieked. If you had only asked me, now all life is dead for me. I still live, he said kindly. At that she burst into tears and ran to him and caught him in her arms. I didn't mean it, she sobbed. I, I didn't mean it. I was just worried and sorry because my beautiful plant died. I do have you, but it may be that you die as the plant and the moon and the song of the laughing man. Everything dies, and perhaps your candle will go out in the dark sometime. Take me away from here. I'm afraid. I fear the dark, and the moon will soon pale, shrink, and die also. He soothed her as best he could, caressingly, telling her they would leave in a few days. 
just as soon as he could get another car. They spent that day as lovers, and for long moments Constance seemed to forget her fears in the embraces of the man. At other times she looked furtively into the dark forest. They told the dame they were leaving, and she sighed, saying she wished they had never come. None too happy, the bride and her husband returned to their bedroom, discussing plans for their future. And I think, said Paul Gallian suddenly, that before we go, we had better throw out that dead mistletoe and clean the room. Suppose we do it now. I will borrow a shears from the old woman. He returned shortly with a great pair of shears, such scissors as the oldest fate used to clip the thread of life. While Constance sat on the bridal chest and cried a little, he cut all the ropes and rotten sheet, then threw the dead plant and other things with it out of the window. As he wiped off the oaken bedstead, he remarked, This wood is all dry and powdery. I believe I could break it in two with my hands. The mistletoe must have taken most of the life out of it. It has taken most of the life out of me, the woman added under her breath. No! We are just beginning to live. There are so many happy days to come. Thus and so he tried to cheer her. The work done, he placed the shears on the bed and then coaxed her to come to supper. She said she was tired and asked that they go to bed early that evening. Returning to the room, she noticed the shears on the bed, exactly in the middle of the coverlet. How odd you are, she said to her husband. You left those shears on the bed, exactly in the middle. If it stays there, it will be between us all night. That would be a good idea, he answered gently. You're tired, and this has been a hard day for you. Thus, in olden times, the knights did with their swords, when they wished to assure their damsels of an undisturbed night. So you stay on your side of the shears, and I will stay on mine. Thus we shall both waken refreshed on the morrow. Half an hour passed. I I'm frightened, Paul, she whimpered. Is that thunder I hear? Hold my hand. Tight. He did so, and went to sleep. Then came the full moon lighting the room with its yellow beams, and the woman heard the sounds of the pipe in the dark forest. At once she knew she must go out and dance or die from desire. As she tried to rise, her hair held her back. She started to pull the long braids, but they still held her. At last she took courage and slid her hand down the braid till she found it wrapped round the neck of the man who held her hand. Her hair, those long black snake-like tresses, were wrapped around his neck, covered his face. She screamed, for she knew that Paul Gallion was dead, and she knew the manner of his death. Yet the pipe called her to the dark forest. She took the shears and cut her hair. Close to her head she cut it. Strand by strand she cut it, till she was free and as the hair loosened it clung closer to the man's face and throat, as though not quite satisfied that the deed was done. Constance took off her silken robe and spread it over the thing that lay on the bed. Under the silk all was well, save for the final convulsive twistings of the ropes of hair tightening uselessly round the throat of the dead. Then the woman ran to the window and climbed feverishly down the ivy. This time she did not wait to put on her slippers. Once she reached the ground, she ran to the rock. The laughing man was gone. The goats and the geese were gone. But through the woods, down the road, she heard the tones of the music 
a very old tune, all within an octave, and she hastened after the song, crying, O Pan, wait for me, please wait for me, so I can love you and be happy. But the laughing man walked on. The running, panting woman could come no closer to him, until at last she saw him standing on the edge of the cliff. There he stood and played, waiting for her. She reached out to catch him and kiss him, but failing to touch the fantasy of his body, she plunged over the cliff, her white body curving like a falling star, till she silently became one with the crushed automobile. The laughing man, lurking in the shadows, ran out into the moonlight and threw his open hands into the air as though to pluck the moonbeams with his questing fingers. Then he began to play his pipes anew. From the dark woods came the goats and the geese and gathered silently round him, and the song he played was all in one octave and very old. He laughed and laughed. These mortals are never content. They always try to gather moonbeams. And even I cannot do that. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? So that was a deep one, was it? I think it was a deep one. It was Monica, it was a modern folktale, but it was written by a guy called David H. Keller, who was an American author known for his contribution to science fiction and pulp magazines during the early 20th century. He was actually a psychiatrist as well as a... Um, I think he was a, a practicing psychiatrist at one point. He was born December 23rd, 1880 in Philadelphia. Keller pursued a career in medicine and graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a medical degree in 1903. He, were, he worked as a general practitioner specializing in the treatment of mental disorders, so not necessarily a psychiatrist, but um, we would say a doctor with special interest. Despite his medical profession, Keller had a strong passion for writing he submitted stories to various pulp magazines with a unique blend of science fiction, horror and fantasy elements. In 1928, he produced one of his most famous works, a novella titled The Revolt of the Pedestrians. The story depicted a future society where automobiles ruled and pedestrians were marginalised. It's interesting given that the one went off the cliff, isn't it? Um, he uh, other uh, other Keller's notable notable contributions to the science fiction genre was his series of short stories featuring the character THE Cat. THE Cat, an ac an acronym for the human electro, was a scientist with the ability to transfer his consciousness into different bodies. These stories often explored ethical and philosophical questions. His career slowed down during the 1940s and 50s as he faced personal and financial challenges. He struggled with health issues and has experienced difficulties in finding publishers for his work. Despite these setbacks, Keller's influence on the science fiction genre remained uh, significant. He died on July 13, 1966 in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, leaving behind a legacy as an early pioneer of science fiction and a writer who explored the human condition through his imaginative titles. I got this story, actually, I came across this story in an anthology called The Horned God, or as I prefer to say, The Horned God, Weird Tales of the Great God Pan, edited by Michael Wheatley, who I suspect is the grandson of Dennis Wheatley. I may have made that up, but I think it may be true. What is true? Not, let's not go into that. 
Okay, so um, so yeah, th- this is a series of um, called the Tales of the Weird, and they've gone through their archives, and they've uh, produced like a lot of volumes. I've got quite a lot of them. They they will be collectible, I think. The the glue in the binding isn't fantastic because as you read it, the pages start to come out. But even though it's a new book, but it's a great series, really. They should do it as hardbacks. Um, it, this is a story. It's it's done as a fairy tale. It's done knowingly as a fairy tale. It's obviously not set in ancient times because they've got a car. And I think he's, um, I don't know, um, he's clearly influenced by people like Jung. I mean, you've got like Joseph Campbell and all that. Let me find the date of Joseph Campbell's The um, Hero's Journey. So Joseph Campbell produced his groundbreaking work, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, in 1949. And this is about how the stories represent um, psychological patterns. He was influenced by Jung, who said that um, everything we do is is kind of archetypal. We do things because we are human, and, and as humans, we have like like you know, birds build nests, and um, <laughs> the wife came up to me. Cats bury their poo. Yeah, I don't know why that came to mind, but there we are. You know, birds build nests, the, the baby turns to the nipple. You know, these are built in. And there is something that is, we don't choose to do these things. Um, they, they, we, you know, we, we, we find them blossoming in us. So I think there's something of that in this. And that's, that's Campbell's work. So this is of the, of the period, but I think this is a period. I talk sometimes of the romantics and you've got like Wordsworth and Coleridge and there was the turn against um, industrialization and the mechanization and the um, if you like uh, looking at the world as parts and machine and there was a, it was a move back to looking at the world as a more organic thing which hasn't ceased yet that movement hasn't ceased it's still going maybe it's always been a split in humanity certainly since the age of technology but um, maybe before I don't know but but and then we get things like the pre-Raphaelites in the mid-19th century, again, who drew all those pictures of... And harkened back to a, a, a cod medieval period, much as Dungeons & Dragons does. There's nothing really medieval about Dungeons & Dragons, and there's nothing really medieval about the pre-Raphaelite movements. They are kind of going back to it. And then you've got, like, William Morris uh, designing all this lovely, lovely stuff and writing things, you know, books, quasi-medieval stories, uh, looking, going back to Norse myth and things like that. And it, even Tolkien's in the middle of that. You remember Tolkien, I think that The Hobbit was produced in 1937 and, you know, The Lord of the Rings comes out um, in the 50s. So what we've got is a definite strand of romantic, and, and Jung was a romantic, he was massively influenced by Goethe. He believed he was Goethe's illegitimate grandson, a great-grandson, I think. These fra- fragments of things I remember. So here we have these. So what? So that's. I think that's the cultural kind of. You could trace that culturally to how we get this story and why it is like it is. But what does it mean? Well, I think it also raises the issue about the environment, the natural environment, and we're in a position now whereby humanity is dominated the natural world so we're not we don't frightened of being predated by wolves or tigers it depends where you live to be fair but most of us aren't for most of us the the environment is mainly not threatening of course then we get tsunamis and floods and wildfires and earthquakes and volcanoes we start to go oh it isn't as tame as we thought it was but for most of the time for most of us in develop in developed 
countries, we are not frightened of the environment. And because we're not frightened, our ancestors, the environment was the beginning and the end. You know, you get elephants, not necessarily in the UK, but, you know, or wandering over your crops. They're not, they're not lovely, fun things anymore. They're, they're your death. You know, so you, we need to remember that. And, and this is true for people in the developing world still. And um, it, it was true for, our, for my ancestors here. Let's be narrow and many of your ancestors are listening. And um, so, you know, when, when there was drought, we were going to go hungry. When there was blight on the potatoes, we were going to starve. So uh, and when the winter was hard, we didn't have enough to eat. And so the natural world was not, it was, it was out to get us. And there's been this massive change. Why am I saying this? Well, the Romantic movement it coincides with the taming of the environment, if you like. So the environment becomes a lovely, fluffy thing that uh, we love and we want to protect. But and that and that is the Romantic spirit, if you like, and and privileging the the things that come from inside. You know, us as part because we are part of the environment as well, um, and we have these drives and urges which are very animalistic and you know that the, the the romantics like all that you know they believe in passion they believe in inspiration they believe in organic growth rather than systemization and mechanization and industrialization all those asians so in this we have this story which which i think sets that out so as a psychiatrist He's going to see the promptings of the, the imagination and the dream life to be part of the natural world, which of course they are, and inspirational. Remember how they loved inspiration and dreams, and so that's how we set, and it's set in a, in a classically gothic dark forest with a dark pool somewhere far away, that, you know, on the borders of Italy, so Savoy or in, in the Alps or Switzerland or maybe Switzerland, I don't know. It would be interesting if it was Switzerland, given the Jungian connection. And there we have Pan, the great god Pan, who represents, in the ancient world, the terror of of the natural world and inspiration and panic and all of those things, those emotions, those passions. But he's also alluring as well. And, and the point is that the, this, what we arise from, is both our life and our death. It gives us life and it kills us. And so it, it has that double fascination. And here we are, this modern couple, basically. They are a modern couple and they get kind of plunged into this dream, dream past, this dream environment. And she particularly, and I think possibly, you know, a view would have been, particularly in those times, that the woman was more open, was more animalistic, less logical. Don't shoot me down. This is just what they thought. Um, and is less rational and more prone to. I mean, I suppose the woman gives birth. So she is, in a sense, more connected, obviously connected. I mean, we're all connected but to, to the natural world and the processes, the mysterious processes of life and death. And so perhaps she is more susceptible to the, to the allure of Pan. And we have that. We have him, who is the brass man, yeah, in the statue, remember, in the library. And he, he finds out his solution 
through books and studying and fixes it through iron pipes. So he's he's the modern man, isn't he? He has his car. He doesn't want to get rid of his car, but he is also enthralled by her as a symbol. of. She's fairly, you know, if I had a, a girlfriend like that, I would be like, oh... I'm I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to leave because she's a she's a bit too um wacky for me being honest. Um I mean, you know, I'm not a big car lover. I've got a car. I'm probably going to run it into the ground and never get another car, but I I wouldn't run it off a cliff. Sheila said to me, "Tell me right, listen, I need you to run the car. We haven't got a cliff. We've got a river. Drive it into the river." I'd be like, "No." Sure, but if you love me, nah, still no. I do, but still no. Uh and um so there we are, and, and she is Eve, isn't she? She is the marble statue of Eve, and he is the brass man or the bronze man uh, in the library. And so she, uh, and this whole mistletoe stuff, these illusions. Remember, we have things like the Golden Bough, after which this is named. So I think it, you may know this. It was um, um, I've talked about Joseph Campbell in the in 1940s, but certainly within that um, uh, that movement, there is. Um, George, Sir James George Fraser published in 1890 The Golden Bough which looked at the common themes and rituals found in mythologies and religions throughout the world so here we are saying that these things arise in humanity, similar things similar things and his of course section is the, is the, um, the dying and resurrected God who is Osiris or um, Christ or various other, other versions of that, the dying and res- resurrecting God um, So, and also we have of course um the White Goddess by Robert Graves, which, which he was staying, trying to suggest was there was a, a common pre-Christian religion of goddess worship in Europe, which which may have survived and um, certainly had uh, stuck its fingers in many pies and uh, came out. So you can see these things here. And the final one, I suppose, we've talked about... Um, We've talked about Robert Graves' White Goddess. We've talked about Fraser's The Golden Bough. We've talked about, um, and these are 100 years apart, The Golden Bough, 1819, not quite 100 years. And in the mid-1940s, 1950, um, Joseph Campbell. And then the one, the other one to not to forget is Gerald Gardner's The Book of Shadows, which founded Wicker. So... Um, the Book of Shadows was written in the 1940s and 50s, and you may remember that uh, Gerald Gardner, for many other things, claimed to have been initiated into a witch cult that he claimed had existed below the radar in the New Forest in Hampshire in the south of England, and the Book of Shadows was was their wisdom. In fact, it was probably written for him by Alistair Crowley, the uh, occultist, who was not a Wiccan, and and they, these rituals are not really ancient. But you can see there is this movement into these basically pagan neo-pagan um vibes man and and i must admit i find some of it very attractive i don't necessarily uh, believe it lock sock and barrel but um there's something very enticing about the the william morris deep woods quasi-medieval tolkien the shire murkwood um golden bough White goddess. There's something very cool about that, and I, that I am kind of a product of my generation as well, and possibly my children, uh, my grandchildren won't feel the same. But you know, we we're all born in a cultural current. We are our culture is around us like water, like the goldfish that swims in the water. And somebody says, "Where's the water?" And they go, "What water?" No, it is. It, we live in it. So anyway, <clears throat> she is tempted 
she is more natural she she and pan represent the danger of the natural world remember the natural world gives us birth but also kills us so the natural world is the great mother it is the it is the, it gives us life but it is a devouring mother as well it is terrifying it is kali you know it destroys as well as creates and i think certainly from a jungian point of view um the hope is is a kind of a gnostic idea that the purpose of of humanity is to create consciousness so is to rise above the unconscious of the natural world so the natural world does not know it is it does all these marvelous marvelous things it is beautiful it is wonderful it gives birth to us but our intellect our consciousness is a, is of a different kind and if we give in to the mistletoe and the dark pool and the pipes of pan we reduce ourselves to an animal level and animals are cool but they don't know that they are so from a from a jungian point of view we'd be saying the purpose of the existence of humanity is to kindle consciousness in a universe there's a famous um, in uh, memories dreams and reflections probably one of the most widely read of jung's books which he didn't actually write uh, i think tony wolf wrote it mm, anyway maybe not maybe not um no Anyway, Amelia Jaffe. Anyway, I forget. Somebody will know. So he talks about how he goes. He goes to Africa and he goes and looks over the Serengeti and he sees all these animals of thousands and hundreds of thousands of animals, and this has been there since the dawn of time. It's a scene repeated over tens of thousands of years, but he points out that when it is known, it is created again. So consciousness adds another dimension to the universe so that's why it's a really precious thing and to to go back to our purely animal natures whereby we know nothing like a tree we don't know what a tree knows but we might say and this is kind of anthrop anthropocentric isn't it but um yeah so i think that's what this story is about it's about the dangers of surrendering our human consciousness which has brought us so much into the darkness of the natural world the da the natural world is wonderful and sustains us and is important but we mustn't be be sucked back into it so that we lose ourselves i think that's what it's saying now this is i talked otherwise about um in other episodes about live issues you know this is a william james william james the psychologist the brother of henry james um, great book, uh, Writer's Religious experience, experience, fantastic book. And he talks about things of being a live issue, you know, and we talked about this before, about how many, the God's use and all the weight of Thor's hammer, like who cares now? Uh, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, who cares? But at one point, people would kill, them, kill each other over this issue, and we have issues which are live to us. And I would suggest that the environment's certainly one of them. And I think, you know, um, people's, this is not something, this is something that's very passionately held and it's live, it's it's real, it's w at work in us. And so um, I'm not suggesting that the natural, I'm not at all, you know, I'm like most modern people, I'm very moved and nourished by the natural world and I want it to keep being natural. I don't really like pesticides. You know, you may say I'm naive, how am I going to get any bread? Well, I don't really eat bread, but that's by the way. Um, you know, you know, you know. So I'm not, I'm, and I'm certainly not against science, and I'm certainly not against technology, and I think it's that middle way. Although it's very hard to steer a middle way these days, isn't it? Everybody's so 
um, <clears throat> polarized. Anyway, there we go. It was a good story, a very thought-provoking story. I like that kind of story. I wrote a story a bit like that called The Grisdale Forest Wedding, although, and that was about surrendering to nature, although nature came out in a better light, I think. Anyway, that's an hour. I need to give a little plug. If you do want to support my work, please consider signing up as a Patreon. There'll be links all over the place, and uh, I would be very happy. I'm all right. Dogs are all right. Sheila's all right. My kids are all right. Uh, Imogen's going to Japan in the 25th. so we've been before to Japan. They go to Tokyo for 10 days, which would be pretty hot, I think, and pretty humid. Um, he's gone with her boyfriend. So that's all super cool. Um, and then I noticed that Catherine had been to the Buddhist monastery with her boyfriend down in, in Ulverston. So the apple does not fall far from the tree. Everybody dies, don't they? I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories and um there is a big on patreon there is a big uh, backlog of stories a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron you can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on youtube but if you want to become a patron you get the double whammy of supporting my work which enables me to do more work imagine that you pay me to do more and i do more work for you and produce more stories for you which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it. So you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members only stories. Every month, I do at least one members only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash. Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.